Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Macro Trading Floor. In this podcast, we host the best worldwide macro strategists and investors and ask them not only to unpack their macro thesis, but also to deliver one actionable investment idea every week. We are recording on May the 4th, 2022, and my name is Andreas Steno. And I am Alfonso Peccatiello, aka Macro Alf for the friends. How are you doing, guys? I'm doing good. And how are you doing, Alfonso? <laughs> hey, it's good, my man. So uh, want to chat about market developments, some weird stuff going on in the Nordics. Let's start from your home turf. What do you say? Well, it's almost my home turf. Uh, I'm situated in Copenhagen, Denmark, but um, the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, uh, the one in Norway, uh, their CIO uh, said this week, that a sort of prolonged stagflation environment would lead them to take a loss of around 40% of the portfolio over time. That was quite the gloomy headline that made. Um, and I mean, it could be right. Uh, I, I, I'm not entirely sure about their allocation, but uh, I mean, if they're allocated towards bonds to a large, large extent, uh, but maybe also duration intensive equities, then who knows whether um, uh, his his projection will be right if we enter a stagflation scenario over the next four to five years. After all, right, we only need, let's say, 5% inflation and minus 5% nominal returns to take the um, inflation-adjusted return to minus 40 over um, a, a very short time horizon of, of three, four, five years, right? Um, so it is, I guess, a pos possible scenario. What do you make of that stagflation scenario, Elf? Well, it's a bit like Paul Tudor Jones going to the wires. I think it was Bloomberg interview yesterday. Um, and he basically said, well, um, I don't want to buy neither bonds or stocks. Thank you very much, Paul Tudor Jones. <laughs> That's, by the way, my same uh, take at the moment. There are very little places where to hide if you have a conventional liquid asset portfolio. That's quite a difficult environment. So the oil fund is a mostly liquid investment portfolio. So... The CEO is pretty gloomy as Paul Tudor Jones also is. Can you blame yeah. him? No, not really. It's not easy right now. Um, and I mean, given what we uh, see in, in fixed income markets, but also the rhetoric from central banks, then I'm basically leaning the same way, um, especially for the next couple of quarters when it comes to risk assets. I really struggle to find any good reason to be overly long those right now. I have yeah. to admit that. If I uh, look at my uh, market cross-asset market dashboard, I try to measure moves in volatility terms to see what's really moving under the surface when you adjust for the normal volatility of an asset class. And I see right now that over the last week, we have seen euro interest rates moving up pretty, you know, by several standard deviations. Mm -hmm. We have seen terminal rates as well being repriced higher in the Eurozone, still 165%, but it's been repriced up at a pretty strong pace. And today the ECB board member Schnabel from Germany came out and said, well, pretty explicitly that the July rate hike is basically a done deal. And she wants to end net asset purchases by the end of June, which doesn't qualify for Q3, if you ask me. It's still Q2, but that goes to show how really central banks are turning their uh, their stance as we speak, Andreas. What do you say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's usually the signal 
of a very mature business cycle when the ECB starts sounding like this. <laughs> I think the last time we had similar voices out from the European Central Bank was in 2011, and we all know how that ended. Um, so what strikes me the most about Schnabel's comments um, is that she's still pretty upbeat on growth. Um, and I think that's the dark horse now. Uh, the ECB members basically all say that they see a low risk of a recession. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I look at forward-looking indicators for the Eurozone, they look even worse than they do for the US, um, much worse actually, uh, as a consequence of everything that's going on geopolitically, for example. Um, so the best index um, in terms of forecasting German GDP growth with a couple of quarters of uh, time lag is the IFO index. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at the expectations component of that index, then it's almost screaming recession, I would say. Um, so it's it's basically looking as bad as in uh, Q1 of 2020 or uh, as in um, in 2011 or 2008. It's, it's, it's that kind of signal it sends. Yeah, but obviously central banks need to uh, talk their book as every yeah. trader out there and their book now says we need to hike and contain inflation expectations. So I think they're going to be very skeptic and myopic when it comes to recognizing growth slowdown, which again, doesn't bode well uh, for risk assets. Another interesting news that we just had was the treasury refunding announcements in the US, where we saw that issuance is getting cut across the board uh, because basically the tax receipts were much stronger yeah. than expected. So the Treasury general account is already larger than forecast, and therefore the U.S. Treasury doesn't need a bunch of cash coming in Q2 additionally from issuance. Interestingly, if you look at the cut across the board, also bills have been cut. And we have reflected upon that, Andreas, and it's important because uh, an additional issuance of T-bill could have helped the money parked at the reserve repo facility to actually absorb some of the balance sheet reduction. So you could yeah. have a sort of a release valve there. But as you actually issue less T-bills even than expected, we were wondering how are we going to have this release valve being used? Probably we don't. And if yeah. we don't, then as the central bank balance sheet needs to go down, the only way to make that happen is via bank reserves dropping in the system too as a counterbalancing mechanism, which you teach me is not exactly a supportive factor overall for both interbank liquidity, market functioning and risk assets overall. No, I perfectly agree. So I think the smart move from the US Treasury would have been to just unleash a bunch of T-bills mm -hmm. instead of issuing longer bonds. Um, I know the funding need is not that big, uh, but you could have made sort of a shift inwards on the curve in the uh, in the funding strategy to try and utilize um, the money parked at the so-called reverse repo facility at the Federal Reserve. So most of, of those money, they basically indirectly belong to money market funds. And for them to be tempted to, to move uh, the money out of the reverse repo facility and into private markets, again, you would need uh, short-term collateral such as T-bills. Uh, yeah. And they won't get a bigger base of, of collateral to invest in. Sim simple now, as that. The interesting thing is that if you look at big picture, effectively, the Treasury is telling us that they have drained resources from the private sector in Q1 by taking a large tax receipt, a larger than expected mm. tax receipt. So they've lowered the amount of disposable bank accounts, basically, for the mm. private sector by taking more resources away, more taxes. And now uh, they actually do not plan to issue much more. So they don't, don't provide uh, deficit issuance, which is a net wealth transfer to the private sector. The overall picture is that they want to rein in 
their spending, basically speaking, and they want to make sure that the tax base overall gets uh, gets stronger, which is basically printing money in reverse, isn't it, Andreas? Yeah. I know you're very vocal about that. <laughs> it is money printing in reverse. And that leads me to the fun take of the week because I actually fixed the uh, GIF that um, most people use on, on Twitter when they want to showcase uh, what the Federal Reserve did during uh, the pandemic. Uh, so they printed a lot of money and, and you have this GIF um, showing Powell uh, printing money and it says, right? Uh, so I fixed it and I reversed it. So uh, now Powell will be standing like this, fishing money back from the private market, market and the printer says, what? Or something yes. like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a cool gif in reverse, I have to yeah. say. Uh, I remember still when we were trying to debate with uh, with people late last year that, you know, policymakers are not going to just keep on delivering stimulus, adding liquidity uh, when things turn and the cycle turns up. Well, back then it seemed to be extrapolated uh towards infinity that policymakers will just keep on printing, will just keep on providing liquidity. Mm. Well, now we're getting the RRB effect, so the opposite of that. That's pretty cool. And my fun take of the week comes by my buddy, Brent Donnelly, uh, which you should follow on Twitter if you don't. And um, Brent is a uh, very fun guy and also a former FX risk taker at a large bank. And he uh, <laughs> actually put down a chart that shows that the amount of people that are not having a partner by the age of 30 have massively increased since 2008. I think it's in the US statistics. Mm. And then he asked the question in his tweet, which was like, Bitcoin was invented in 2008. Is that a coincidence? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I mean, I, I recall a meme going viral with this guy standing on a nightclub whispering in the ear of a girl, I am long Bitcoin. (laughs) But apparently it hasn't worked. Um, I've honestly tried it a couple of times myself live as well, but it didn't work. Don't do it. Okay. Okay. Let's change tactics there. Although maybe if you were long Bitcoin since 2008, you can just showcase some money that you've made them. Probably that's, that's probably the issue. I only said it. I didn't, I didn't put my money where my mouth was. You also have a fake Bunksky there. So come on, man. I mean, just step up your game. What are you doing? I'm not, I'm not performing on that front. Sorry, guys. (laughs) All right. Uh, Enough with the banter, Andres. Time to introduce our new guest. I'll let you do that. Yeah, uh, because I am very happy to introduce Steen Jacobson, uh, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Saxo Bank. Steen is also a Dane, as, uh, as I am, uh, and uh, he has got uh, a long experience in financial markets and also experience back from the time when we saw inflation in the 70s and 80s, which is interesting in this regards because we don't have that experience, Alfonso. So let's get to the interview. Now it's a great pleasure to uh, introduce our guest, Stane Jacobson, the uh, Chief Investment Officer of Saxo Bank. Welcome to the show, Stane. Thank you very much for having me. Now, uh, as I mentioned during the intro, Stane, you are actually old enough to have experienced inflation. In sharp contrast to Alfonso and me, we've never experienced it before. What do you make of the current situation on price pressures compared to what you've seen through your life? I think it's, of course, uh, for me personally, a very sad intro to be introduced to someone who was around in the 1970s. 
But I tell you one thing: the football was much better in those days with Gerd Müller and Beckenbauer, Johan Cruyff, uh, and not these uh, ballet dancers that we have uh, on the on the pitch these days. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so uh, at least something was better. I think the hairdo uh, of Paul Breitner probably wasn't the best, but uh, but Mao was a big big thing of his, and of course Mao in terms of China is also big. But on a serious note, of course, uh, I think uh, you have a valid point in a sense that very few people actually theoretically and practically understand the difference between nominal and real GDP, nominal and real inflation in terms of what goes on in the market. And I think it leads to a number of wrong conclusions, both in the, in the minds of the central banks, but certainly also in the, uh, in the financial market. And as such, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very stark reality that the world today has two separate economic systems. One is the financial system, of which I think all three of us sits in. Uh, but what has happened to me is that the physical world, the practical, the real economy has actually overtaken and shown its limit relatively to the financial world. So Andreas at least knows that for the best part of uh, more than three years, I've been saying again and again, my, my mantra is that the uh, physical world has become too small for the aspiration of fiscal, monetary and green transformation at the same time. And that that's really what uh, sort of mimics and what rhymes between the 1970s and now, the physical constraints are back and that is holding back the financial world and forcing a uh, recalibration of the financial world, of course, which uh, uh, culminates in, in uh, the Fed being the worst position relatively to inflation ever in history. Okay, Stan, extremely interesting point on the physical constraints being a limiting factor here. So can you please elaborate a bit further on that backbone of your macro thesis at this stage? Apart from being a chief investment officer, of course, I have a number of uh, advisory jobs in the real world, in shipping, in, in, in the uh, commodity space. And, and it was pretty clear to me very early on that, uh, that, that what was going on, that we were pushing on a string. So when you live in a world with negative real rates, I think uh, at least... Uh, uh, those of us who went to university, uh, as you indicated, in almost in the 1960s, hardly, but in the 1980s and 90s, we, we were taught that uh, that basically the uh, ability of uh, the total size of a system is really uh, is constrained by the physical amount that you can pop. Of course, there was this no whole theory, new theory that that everything could be on platforms. There was. Uh, a, Certainly in history, if we, if we draw that up, uh, 1989 was the peace dividend. The Berlin Wall came down. Uh, 2001 was the entry of uh, WTO of uh, China. And what we then proceeded to do was, of course, a substitution of labor, cheap labor in the East being the sort of the uh, production hub. But what we also did, which is coming back to haunt us today, of course, was that we practically also substituted uh, electricity and consumption of energy in the West, which was highly expensive with a coal burned equivalent in, in Asia, which still exists today, which makes the whole electric vehicle and the green transformation utterly practically uh, and, and probably uh, it's a strong word, but it makes it pretty ridiculous because as long as India, China and Russia continues to produce everything with 70, 80% input from coal, it doesn't really matter whether the three of us have uh, 10, 100 electric vehicles because it's not going to make one iota difference to, to, to the constraints of the system. So, so for me, 
uh, the fact that we have backbridation in more than 20 uh, commodities right now indicates that the spot demand is significant in excess of the supply. If you then add all the complication of Ukraine and everything else, just just forget the you know we shouldn't, but but let's in in this fear in this forum forget about the humanitarian cost and the geopolitical cost. But what practically happens is that five to ten percent of the world's global supply commodity is then taken out at the same time, and this is before you even adjust for a voluntary. Uh, um, Letting, embargo yeah so 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 basically we probably lost 15 percent of all global commodities in a world that continues to want to do more green and more electrical vehicles and the likes and for good reason take germany germany is now in a position where they they, they lift off the natural gas of uh, and oil from from russia now they need to find a different solution it has to be inside the alternative energy space but that also means that we will be ramping up the demand and the shortcomings of all of these backwardation commodities this we look at so so for me the backwardation being and having one of the best equity sorry commodity analysts in the world in Ulias Hansen of course I have the luxury of having access to daily data on what goes on and right now the energy of course is moving from not just oil but into the distillates the gasoline the diesel is losing 40 percent with this move that was announced this week of Europe uh, backing away from from Russian products and Ukraine products uh, so for me, things are getting worse, and it's still structural, and it's still the physical world that's too small. And this leaves open, of course, what you want to discuss, I'm sure, in a moment, uh, whether the Federal Reserve, one, can do anything about this as, as a global central bank, and secondarily, uh, how we are supposed to navigate the next 12 months in terms of, you know, there's a competition, isn't there, right now, on whether it's going to be 7, 9, 12, 20 uh, Fed hikes. Uh, <laughs> To me, it doesn't really matter because uh, for me, uh, the marginal changes to monetary policy is far more important. And here, the liquidity and the liquidity constraints, in, in the simplest way, just take the four major central banks of the world. They have uh, moved from being plus 40% year over year in growth of the balance sheet to now being negative in, in this month. And this is before uh, this week that the Federal Reserve announces the QT. I've had a long debate uh, with a couple of colleagues earlier today on whether the cure for high prices is high prices. Uh, that's at least one of the debates that's ongoing right now, uh, also in the uh, financial world. What do you make of that thesis? Uh, do you think demand will take a massive hit just because of what we've seen on inflation this year, Steve? I, I, you know, that omen or that mantra comes from the commodity market. It's always been part of the uh, the uh, sort of the way that the, the commodity market has seen itself. I think it's an oil oil quote, really, back in history, that in order to get lower prices, you need higher prices because normally you will have elasticity on both the demand side but also supply because, of course, marginally you would expect that oil producers will increase the production. But but uh, going to the to to the core of your question, no, I don't see that as the answer, unfortunately. Because if you look at the forward curve five years out, and and I I don't know whether the two of you have noticed, but all of the major oil company has not increased the capex, despite the fact that the spot price trades north of hundred dollars. But the problem is that uh, you know idiots like the three of us, and I, I include you two here. I'm sorry to do that, but but you know people who have a uh, 
have an attention span of uh, you know five minutes in, in in the best of cases we look at 105 110 dollars and say oh, wow the kbx must be exploding here but what you need to look at is the five-year forward price which is still trading at 60 65 and if you're at 60 65 forward prices for an oil company it is still not worthwhile for them to to uh, increase the amount of kbx so what we need to see ironically is the same uh, sort of saying that 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 uh, that uh, that you just said, but you needed to see in the back end of the curve. So right now, like with inflation, you know, the Federal Reserve and ECB still thinks inflation is going to be two and a half percent, three percent in 12 months, and the oil industry still sees five years from now that oil is still at 60 dollars because of this, you know, constraints coming from ESG, the constraints in capital, and the fact that they regulatory and and practically are getting overtaxed. So no. This time around is not working simply because we're not releasing capital into the space. And if you ask private equity people, which which I, I meet on a regular p- uh, basis, they will want 15, 20% return on equity to to go into fossil energy uh, as it is, which is kind of ironic considering that the Danish state, the Finnish state, the Norwegian state, the German state, the Colombian state, all of these are willing to increase the amount of drilling that, that they do. Uh, right now, but the the capital that sits inside, let's call it the political system of uh, ESG and, and green transformation, still remain very reluctant. Uh, the million dollar question, Stein, right now is whether increasing base rates, uh, both from the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, etc., will make the situation with a lack of capex in the energy sector better or worse. What's your take on that? Being a good economist on one hand, on the other hand, I'm going to say yes and no, of course. Uh, <laughs> I learned that from uh, from uh, Andreas Dad uh, back in the days when I worked with him. Really <laughs> no, but 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 the answer is both, right? Because if you don't trade, if, if you don't change the regulatory uh, framework, you're not going to get more investment. So basically, you need to to create a uh, a green shoot. You need to create the ability for in, uh, all companies to have capital advantages of doing what they do right now they are the best trade in town because basically they create so much cash flow and they are buying back your stock to the extent that a company uh, last time i checked glencore is going to buy 50 percent of your stock back over the next 15 months just in the mining sector uh, and so so you you really almost literally have no downside here the stock may go nowhere but but in terms of the dividend buyback dividend payout and the buyback you're going to be made whole from from these investments you know you right now have refinery companies having better return on capital than uh, microsoft and apple uh, so, so you're changing the dynamics, and inside that dynamics, of course, you change some of the things that you want to achieve there, Andreas. But the thing is, the banks are not going to be lending more money to to this sector. Uh, the private equity, as I indicated, has a threshold that is still 15, 20% in the market of uh, carry rates of, of three to four. So, I still think we are uh, quite a bit, quite a bit away from 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 the inflection point where where capital. Uh, returns are, are, are attractive enough from, from these players because the the pension system, the uh, sovereign wealth funds, they are still shying away from this uh, massively. And and if anything, they are increasing their calls. At least that's what we've seen in Scandinavia, as you as you very well know yourself uh, over the last couple of days. So so for for me, uh, this is a very sad story where realism is uh, put in in the in the parking space and political agendas and and short sightedness is 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 dominating the, the 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 macro picture which makes for you know both a policy mistake from federal reserve who doesn't understand one iota of all these uh, inflation drivers 
but also the political initiative is changing very, very fast to a fiscal response to a monetary issue. So, Stein, if we move the conversation from the supply side and the commodity side of the equation to the demand side and the monetary policy response to that, right? So, how do you think uh, demand is looking here from an inflationary pressure perspective? How do you factor that in your analysis? And what do you think central banks are going to do about all of this anyway? I, I tell anyone who wants to listen that uh, reading, uh, going to university or reading economics is a waste of time. But, but uh, a couple of things actually was it was interesting, at least in my economic studies, and, and uh, yield curve was one of them. Of course, what you are indirectly addressing here is the, the risk of recession or, or demand destruction through yeah. higher prices uh, and or uh, higher uh, steering rates. The problem is for someone like me and, and my, to, to be honest, my CEO always introduces me as someone who's predicted five of the last two recessions. So I'm not a, I'm not a guy who's afraid of normally covering a recession, but this time I'm on the sideline and, and then, you know, in broad headlines, my, my call is that uh, fate, the recession in the US is not going to happen. And, and in terms of Europe, uh, the stagflation you also need to fade. I think things are much better. And the reason it's much better is that the private sector uh, balance sheet is is in a, a very, very good position. You see that through, of course, the, the full employment that is, is ongoing. You see it through the secondary effects, which is wage inflation is probably in a number of set jobs exceeding even the very high inflation that we have on the headline. So, so there is a mobility and disposable income. And if you look at the uh, bank lending right now, both in the US and on credit cards, they're growing at uh, 10% 10 on on, on lending and 26% growth year over year in credit cards. That's not normally how a recession looks like, (laughs) to be honest. And if you then move it over to where the majority of assets in the world sits, which is the housing sector, you have to remember that the the housing sector is probably, uh, apart from the commodity space, the sector in which you have the biggest mismatch between supply and demand. So yes, you can kill some of the, you can kill some of the demand, but but the supply is not going to get bigger in, in those spaces. So we 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 are so far and so deep into the excess demand over supply that even uh, you know uh, destructing some demand uh, through higher prices and and higher steering rates is not going to be material enough to reduce it. And and the way I measure it in in practical terms is that. Yeah, I'm sure you all follow the financial condition by by Goldman Sachs, and and what few people seem to realize is that, you know, a hundred basis point move in the financial conditions index in, in in Goldman Sachs means and is geared towards indicating that growth comes down by the same amount. So if it's up by hundred basis point, you can expect that the four quarter from now growth should be lower by hundred basis point. In in totality, we move 150 basis points uh, up in the Goldman Sachs index which it means that we have lost growth of one and a half percent. Federal Reserve in December last year was at 4%. So essentially now we are at one and a half, two and a half percent growth in the U.S. Again, that is not recession. Cleveland Fed, who runs probably the widest measure of recession risk, have a lower risk of recession in uh, in, uh, April and June this year than they have in December last year. So no, I, I don't see enough destruction going. And, and the reason I don't see that is that it is more likely for me that there will be a fiscal response because of the burden of higher energy and, and food prices on the consumers than there is that, that the Federal Reserve will back down or central banks will stop uh, the, the QT program. And, and on the QT program, maybe a, a second point being that 
there's a difference between a passive QT and an active QT, which I think we'll see this week with Bank of England moving from passive to active. When you move from an active, move to a active QT, you're going to take massive losses as a central bank, right? The the Bank of England has issued bonds at par now. They need to, you know, they 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 need to buy them back at a much higher rate. So so effect, uh, you know, they 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 are losing a lot of money in the active program. So it, the whole dynamics of what goes on over the next three months is is inflationary uh, and not deflationary, interestingly enough, which at least probably is where I stand aside from from the rest of the industry. So for me. Terminal rates are going higher because inflation is going to be lighter. Uh, and the mismatch for me, the single biggest mismatch for me is that one year out, you expect Federal Reserve to be at 275 probably. And inflation rate is still going to be a 400 basis point, which means that the real rate is minus 125. Is that a tight monetary condition index? Is that a condition under which normally consumers cave? Is that a condition under which you have demand destruction? No, it's not. It's actually very accommodative if you assume that zero real interest rate is still accommodative but average. Yeah. Steen, I, I saw an opinion poll on Twitter today uh, asking the Twitter crowd for the terminal rate of this cycle of the Federal Reserve. And I responded to it saying that it was below 2.5%. I think, Alfonso, you said 2.5% precisely. What's your answer to that opinion posting? I would like to hear that. Is it above 2.5%? I think that's safe to say from what you've said. <laughs> yeah, it's 400 basis point. Okay. So people much smarter than me, like uh, Bassman and others who are, you know, the guy who invented convexity and the move index, he says that the, and, and this is probably where I little, my, my experience differs from, from you guys, I always look to uh, the rate that breaks the system. Uh, clearly 3% in 10 years is not the rate, but what is the rate in my opinion is 400 basis points. So between 375 and 400 basis points, that's where the system breaks. And I don't think any momentum uh, macro cycle breaks before something breaks in that cycle. Uh, in other words, I don't believe that as human beings, I don't think we are conditioned to change our attitude or the plan by which we move forward before it breaks down and we see there are no alternative to but to change. And, and you know, I probably should put also out there that for me, November uh, last year was the single biggest event in my life. And I've seen, you know, the 87 stock crash and and uh, 98, the Russia's default and uh, WTO and, and the Berlin Wall, all this is part of my history. But, you know, November last year, the Federal Reserve was told, literally told by the White House to hike interest rates to fight inflation. And I think that's lost uh, back to where we started. That is lost on, on younger people where that the significance of that. This is only the second time it's fed 100-year history that that has happened. The last time, of course, being uh, Volkan Carter. Now Paul wants to be Folger. Uh, there is no way in hell he's uh, he's Folger. That would be like saying that uh, I'm Michael Laudrup, and, and I'm certainly not uh, to say to say the least. But but that there is no way in hell I can I can be Michael Laudrup, and there's no way in 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 in, in any space uh, in in the galaxy that 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 Folger is is now the the new Paul. So you know it, it's it's a matter of when people cave, and I assume both of you are really playing to the theme that ultimately Fed will break something earlier. So I think the difference between you and I is that I think this process needs to run longer, i.e. the terminal rate is higher, whereas you think, you know, historically uh, Fed is caving because this, that, and the other. I just think November makes it different for me. So 1994 analogies, any analogy that runs, you know, inside the last 20 years, which I find the most useless, most 
predictable monetary policy ever in history is it's lost on me. Stain, what a great uh, picture you put out there. It makes me think of the fact that if I answer that poll saying it's two and a half percent, then why am I not long bonds here? Because, you know, forward pricing is much higher than two and a half percent. So if I think it's two and a half, then I should be buying, uh, you know, uh, call options on euro dollar. I should be buying bonds here because it's pricing already more. And I'm not. I'm not buying bonds here. And so that makes me, uh, let's say, agree with you on the fact that the reaction function of the Fed year can be very convex if inflation doesn't actually slow down. And I'm also impressed by the fact that inflation break-evens are pricing inflation to remain much above the 2% Fed target. And nevertheless, terminal rate, it's still around about 3%, which seems to be an inconsistency, which also leads us to your investment idea, which is, of course, linked to this inconsistency between nominal rates and inflation expectation. But can you elaborate on the investment idea? Yeah, so you two put me on a spot because you know yes. generally I like to talk just another a lot of uh, macro bullshit without being accountable, and now all of a sudden you want me to be totally accountable yes. and trying to put a trade on on the table. But it struck me right away that the the best way to express what I wanted to talk about on this macro podcast and linking it to that trade would be gold. Uh, a lot of people keep telling me that gold has disappointed. Uh, people tell me that uh, it should have been much higher. The fact is, you know. We are, you know, hundred dollars away from three thousand year high in gold, right? I, I think people lose track of that once in a while. I mean, it is extremely high, relatively speaking. Uh, also, for the record, uh, advise all the clients that I have advisory services on to do their portfolio in gold in order to get the real purchasing power what goes on the yeah. difference between nominal and, and real. I think that is best measured in gold over the next uh, three to four years. But what I'm saying is that if if my world outlook is as such that the structural and inflation is going to go and tip higher, not lower, I think there is an inflection point. We had 8%, 8.5% inflation in, in almost every single country. And, and for the record, I think uh, PPI is far more accurate than CPI. CPI is a basket of consumers. PPI is the whole economy. So and most of the PPI runs at two times the CPI. So we really have an inflation rate of 16 70%. At least when Andreas and I go to the grocery store, we are not looking at 8% inflation. We are looking at 25% inflation in, in most of the goods, right? So, 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 you know, that underestimation is better measured by PPI. And when that is realized by the market, when Federal Reserve, as you say very rightly, when Federal Reserve realized they're not going to be a 3% inflation rate in, in 2023, they're going to be four, if not five, then there's a catching up to do that drives the inflation, the, uh, the as you say, right now, actually, we have an acceleration of the uh, break-evens relatively to the, to the terminal rate which means that inflation expectation is rising, relatively speaking. And I think that's continuing. And, and, and we know from history, again, here is an advantage of being old. We know from history that if we are in the 5 to 10% for a longer period, and this is uh, essential for a longer period, then all of a sudden you have $500,000 uh, uh, increases in, in the price of gold because simply you run out of collateral, you run out of the ability to get away from inflation. And I think we are in that inflection point because physically, at least reported by by Ole Hansen, my my commodity guy, the physical gold is being bought left, right, and center. It's being killed a little bit by the increase in real rates. Of course, this week we have a massive uh, move in real rates. Uh, the ten-year real rates from from whatever minus hundred now we are plus fifteen basis points. So that's killing it a little bit in the short term. But the fact remains that the headline inflation is going to be higher. So if we look for a time horizon on this trade idea, Steen, would you have this trade on for? like the next three, five years, it sounds like it. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, you want me to make a trade, and then I have to put a time on it. It's it's against oh, yeah. everything. It's my my body is almost uh, convulsing into cramps here uh, from from having to answer those questions. But you know, to be honest, uh, Andreas, you know, I run a uh, you know stolen directly pretty much off Christopher Cole Bartimus. I run a hundred year portfolio for my advisory. And I have gold. I have a very high gold allocation of 10% in that portfolio. Uh, on on the alpha side, I'm I'm more than willing to right now at these price levels, depressed levels of gold, as I see, to buy call options on the upside. So I think inside the next three to six months, six months, you can easily not easily, but you could potentially get, you know, $500 worth of uh, of increase in, in in gold. But I think what is really happening is a paradigm shift to tangible assets. So going back to where I started, if the real economy is too small for the uh, total uh, financial world uh, and, and the fiscal and, and monetary, then we're going to get more fiscal, which is inflationary. We're going to be, if you're right about the two and a half percent terminal rate, I can guarantee you one thing, and that is at the end inflation rate is going to be significantly higher than even I expect it to be simply because it's a cash 22. If you don't do a contraction of the uh, uh, financial condition, then you get high inflation. I mean, if you don't kill the demand, if you protect the demand in the economy, then you are clearly going to be up against the supply. So, you know, so three to six months, I think there is a, a, a relatively good gain of it. But but structurally, I think gold is in for a five to 10 year period of uh, excess return. Stan, now, as the last thing, we'll get, we're going to give you a chance to uh, you know, uh, provide you an escape route and ask you a question. What can go wrong with your trade? So try to, you know, talk down your trade now and say at the end, if it's wrong, I told you guys, this could be the reason why it was wrong. What, what, this, what, uh, what is this reason, if there is one? That, that, that is probably the real race will continue to, to increase massively. So there wouldn't be this balancing off of fiscal and, 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 and energy uh, dependent strategies. Uh, to be honest, and uh, you should never be, as you say on your T-shirt, be humble. Uh, so, so there's a big risk. I've been wrong about a lot of things over the last 30 years, and I'm going to be wrong about a lot of things over the next, hopefully, 30 years. But, but to me, the structure of what goes on, the the amount of backwardation, the amount of political initiative, I think. Uh, at least to me, the policy response is very clear. We're going to have fiscal. Uh, uh, support for energy and food very, very soon across the board, uh, and particularly in the emerging market, but also already in Europe. So, so you know, but if real rates continue to, to move quicker, in other words, if Fed actually lived up to being vulgar, if power is really vulgar, I'm going to be screwed at big time. <laughs> Stan, it's been a pleasure to have your, uh, you on the macro trading floor. Thanks for elaborating the macro trade uh, idea with us and your thesis as well. Uh, we'll hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Hey, Andreas. So we're back to debate uh, the trade that Stan Jakobsen put on, which is to be long gold in physical format. We're going to talk about how do we do that, uh, how the trade could be implemented and whether we're going to buy, sell the trade or just be neutral about it. Um, I see you're still in the cave. Uh, with no light. What's going on, man? Just buy a light. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess uh, it is a signal of how poor my trading record has been this year. Yes, yes. I don't have the money to pay yes. for the lighting. Fake Bonsky and no light in his place. I mean, guys, just don't listen to Andreas. Now, on a serious <laughs> note, on a more serious note, I think Stain um, made a pretty interesting macro thesis that was, again, I think like the, like the Jim Leitner's one, um, focused at least for half of it 
on how tight are the spot commodity markets because of supply and how yeah. relevant it is, how constrained this physical market is. Um, what do you make of his overall thesis mixing the supply side, the demand side, and ultimately uh, expressing the thesis by a gold? Well, well, first of all, uh, I am extremely fond of the idea that the current spot development in, for example, oil, natural gas markets, etc., reflect an extreme supply scarcity. I think that's fair to say. Uh, and I also uh, share uh, Stein's view that if you look at the longer end of the futures curve in such markets, for example, natural gas and oil markets, they, they tend to reflect that some kind of normalization will happen. I know that we've debated this before, that uh, a backwardation of a commodity curve basically means that the market is trying to bid physical storage out of the storage. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a fair assumption as well. But the point here is still that um, future pricing of commodities need to pick up uh, as a consequence of what we see on the supply side. And I actually tend to agree with that view, uh, which leaves, of course, a tricky road ahead on um, what I would call inflation expectations, because they are linked to the um, to the further end of, of uh, the commodity curve. So I think a lot of what Stein is saying is absolutely spot on. Um, what I dislike about his thesis is that he wants to reflect it in gold, because that wouldn't be my top pick if I wanted to, to bet on a supply scarcity uh, in, in the commodity space overall. But of course, he, he links it to the possibility of the Federal Reserve sort of still staying behind the curve into a scenario with continued supply side inflation. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think that the Fed is starting to move ahead of the curve now. They're really trying to, at least, which makes gold a tricky tactical case, in my view. Um, uh, what, what, what do you make of that, uh, the tactical case for gold? Uh, I'm actually, uh, if I have to really choose to do something about gold at this moment would be a position where I would be short on a tactical basis and not long. I am not literally short because it would pile up on the same trades that I have already, which is to be short equities, short credits. It would be just another asset to be short, which would correlate in this macro environment with the positions I already have on. And I don't want to pile up risk on my uh, personal book. But... Um, what I find interesting out of what Stan says is, okay, so the supply side of the commodity angle is going to remain very tight and tighter than forward inflation swaps are already pricing. Yes. So he thinks that the forward inflation swap, which I would like to remind our audience, is backward sloping. So yeah. forwards are, are going down basically over time and realize inflation is supposed to come down. Stan thinks that's not going to happen. So inflation is going to beat the forwards. Okay, cool. Then there is the demand side of the equation where he thinks consumers' balance sheets are extremely healthy. He thinks even the housing market has nothing to worry about in the short term because inventory are extremely tight. He thinks that um, basically uh, credit is flowing through bank lending. Although if I look at the data, to be honest, I have a pushback on a bunch of these arguments on a cyclical perspective for instance the credit being the credit being expanded by um, by banks it's if you split by category one is residential credit but then there is uh, consumer uh, cni loans basically um, and uh, and the real economy capex intensive loans are picking up as for any late cycle if you ask me but numbers are not historically impressive and he's talking about the us well if you look for example in europe or other jurisdictions Bank lending towards the real economy is okay, but it's not going through the roof. And on the consumer, on the strength of the consumer balance sheet, I also would have my uh, 
my worries. It, you know, disposable income was boosted by huge fiscal transfers. But if you strip mm. the fiscal trans- transfers away from this equation, you end up looking at real wages, real disposable income, which is actually below what the trend line basis, long-term trend line basis would suggest. Mm. So I think the demand side is a bit weaker than what Stain thinks. But his main thesis is that Powell is not Volcker. So mm. if inflation expectations go up, Andres, and beat forwards, then it's not like Powell is going to be able to pull a Volcker and put himself in front of the inflation expectation curve in no. such a way to keep real rates higher even then and damage gold. And therefore, he feels relatively confident expressing the, the view that inflation expectations are going to continue to go up and nominal yields can't catch up because Powell is not Volcker, so I can buy gold. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not sure I want to fully buy into the thesis, to be honest. No. And um, I think also uh, it's it's tricky to split the time horizons on gold here mm-hmm. because I eventually buy into the idea that gold is a decent hedge to your portfolio if we enter stagflation. The question is just whether we do that. And I think there are so many uh, indicators on the demand side pointing south during the second half of next year that I actually find a decent chance of the Federal Reserve moving ahead of the inflation curve during that same period uh, because eventually they will be helped by a slowing demand side even before they get started really uh, which is at this juncture basically a help to them because they want to bring the downside back towards the supply side in terms of size um, and to get markets back in equilibrium right yeah um, what I really liked about his expression was the you know basically comparing what's happening now with what happened decades ago where you and I were not trading in this market mm. and um, effectively if you look at the the Fed turning on a dime so aggressively in November it's clearly also due to political reasons but mm. at this stage it is pretty clear to me that the Fed is serious about inflation I mean it, they really are they really don't want to see inflation expectation going up further so I am of the opinion that if that would happen the chances of Powell turning into Volcker are slightly higher than consensus expect, which I think consensus expects zero probability of Powell turning into Volcker. But in this environment where policymakers see inflation expectation really de-anchoring, then I think they lose really their ground under their feet. And then they have to come in and send stronger signals and have a, what I call very convex reaction function, which actually puts them in front of the inflation curve. In that environment, you own no assets, basically speaking. And one thing Stain is pointing out to the fact is that if that happens, the terminal rate has to be priced much higher than what it is today. And we saw a survey today on on Twitter being sent out on where people think the terminal rate is going to be. And we saw some interesting answers there. There are not so many people thinking that the terminal rate will have to be pushed at four or 5% at this time, right? No, no, no. Uh, But uh, we have a lot of investment banks calling for it, but that's a totally different question. Um, it, it seems as if uh, economists from Staten's generation, they actually tend to think that this is a game changer for the terminal rate in the sense that uh, the stimulus that we saw through 2020 and 2021 will actually allow both the uh, private sector balance sheets, but also household balance sheets to cope with high interest rates. Um, I think there are a tiny bit to that argument, but I still want to see it happening before I really trust it. Uh, since on a lot of very simple metrics, 
we've basically seen worsening fundamentals since we had the last peak in the federal funds rate. And I repeat that over and over, but it, it matters. Demographics have worsened. Uh, the, mo- the major reason why we have a very tight labor market right now is because people haven't returned to the labor force. It's not as if the employment as a percent of the population has gone ballistic. It is not. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's basically a matter of people not returning. <clears throat> That's one thing. Uh, and the second thing is that the debt load basically exploded through 2020 and 2021. Uh, and it tends to matter for the f- terminal rate whether the debt load is intensive or not. I have to subscribe being a uh, long-term doom on the economy here. Uh, No, but I mean, those are structural factors that are uh, keeping down the ability of the private sector to generate healthy cash flow on a sustainable basis and to also being able to carry on on, um, you know, higher leverage costs for their own business, their own balance sheet, their own um, uh, housing uh, buying intention and all of that. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the Federal Reserve can't really go aggressively this time and try to ignore the signals coming from the private sector, assuming we are right on the fact that the consumers is not so strong as same things. The Federal Reserve can still choose to elect inflation as their problem one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, ignoring the signals coming from the asset market and the, the real economy even at some point, if they're really committed about that. Mm. Uh, expressing the trade, Andreas, if somebody would want to follow Stan's uh, uh, line of thought, basically, uh, what do you think is the best way to, to buy uh, gold in a cost-effective and in a smart way? And, and now I'm, it, you're basically <laughs> revealing my hypocrisy <laughs> full-scale now because I actually own <laughs> a gold ETF. Um, yeah. It's called uh, V. Uh, wisdom tree physical gold to um, actually have underlying physical gold uh, and uh, that is a very cost effective way of implementing a long gold position so i keep a little bit of that in my mm-hmm. passive portfolio i have to admit that yeah actually andreas i also have a long-term investment portfolio where i own eight percent of gold it's been written on the macro compass plenty of times nothing to hide it's the same etf by the way by coincidence um, mm-hmm. which i find a decent risk reward ETF to express the position being long gold over the long term. Here, though, we are debating whether tactically over the next three to six months we'd mm. like to be long gold. And I think we can say pretty out loud that we don't like the asset class uh, tactically over the next yeah. three to six months. But long term, so there can be different time horizon. You can be short something on a short time horizon and long something on a long time horizon as a mm. portfolio diversifier then I think um, uh, FAO in general uh, makes a good vehicle both for the long-term and the short-term um, investment opportunity here if you want to um, back up Stain's line of thought. Definitely. But I think that uh, leads us to the conclusion of this week's podcast. We're not going long gold, Alfonso. No. We rather want to short it short-term. Uh, but still, I found Stain's storytelling extremely compelling. Uh, and uh, he was a great, great guest for this uh, edition of the Macro Trading Floor. One thing I will promise you um, out there is that I have moved to a new apartment next week, so I <laughs> I will ensure to have a better lighting in the room uh, when we record uh, next week. Uh, so I'm basically moving uh, more or less as we are recording. So I put a lot of emphasis on Stain telling me that I shouldn't be uh, scared of the real estate market because uh, I am, to say it 
as bluntly as I can, I am levered to the titties <laughs> privately in this new apartment that I've bought. So fingers crossed that um, that the real estate market will cope with these high interest rates. We are recording on uh, May the 4th, 2022. Uh, Andreas and I do not buy the trade on a tactical um, basis, although we own both gold with the same ETF, by the way, in our long-term portfolio. And uh, one last request is, guys, thank you again for the support. The downloads numbers are going up every week. It's incredible. If you really want to keep on supporting us, just you know, subscribe or rate us on any podcast app. It really helps for the visibility. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Macro Trading Floor, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.